Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Well-sealed windows. No other country can make such well-sealed and nice windows. This apparently was uh, Angela Merkel's answer to um, a question asked by a journalist more than a decade ago um, when the journalist asked her what she most associated with Germany. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of detail that we expect in a column from um, the rest is history's top pundit, Dominic Sandbrook, who is here with me. Um, and Dominic, you wrote this article, I think, just before the elections that were on Sunday that's right. Um, so that, on Saturday, yeah. That we'll be bringing the curtain down on uh, Angela Merkel's 16-year reign as Chancellor of Germany. So we thought we'd do a kind of guerrilla look at um, at not just Angela Merkel, but the entire history of post-war German democracy. Um, and this is obviously a subject that, that, that particularly interests you. Well, I think, uh, like everybody in Britain, I was on the edge of my seat for the German federal elections. I know it's uh, something that... Um, it did seem a, to me that people in England were, and Britain, were, were more interested uh, in, in this Do you think so? I, I don't think... I do, yes. I've I think it's... Loads a, of articles I, about Merkel, about wither Germany, all that kind of stuff. Well, it may be in the broadsheets, but I think it's a really interesting thing that people in Britain get so interested in American presidential elections, generally. The BBC do. And, you know, the, the these sort of incredibly consequential elections in the biggest, most powerful, most economically dynamic state in Europe kind of passed most people by. I mean, most people couldn't name the leaders of the CDU or the SPD, the two big German parties. Could you name them, Tom? I'm not, I, I, I don't actually think I could. Of course <laughs> you could. Of course you could. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting and revealing thing. And actually, German, German politics is much... I mean, it has this reputation in Britain of being just stupefyingly bland isn't um, that the point though but I, well i think this is I mean, the point and this is historically is the, really and interesting the point that you make in your article about merkel is that in a sense the the kind of the the cozy tedium yeah is precisely the point because of course it's being set in contrast <laughs> exactly to what, pre- to what it, had happened up till 1945 exactly so when our producer said you know, why don't you do something about Angela Merkel's departure and German politics? Um, and I started looking in, thinking about the German post-war chancellors. I mean, they're all against the backdrop of the war, indeed, they both are, world yeah. wars, in one way or another. I mean, they've all got the war in their in their personal history or in their family background. And actually, it turns out to be colossally more interesting than you think. And the blandness, the ordinariness, yeah. and the humdrum nature of German politics is, as you absolutely say, it's part of the point. It's deliberate. And- and of course, Merkel has the communist period growing yes, up in yes, East Germany exactly. as well. So all the chancellors have, as this kind of backdrop, the experience of, of, of fascism and communism. Exactly. So I think what we should do, Tom, is rattle through the chancellors first. So okay. to give people a sense of the context, because I think that's really important and interesting. And then probably in the second half or so, we'll see how we do. We can get on to Merkel. How does that sound? That sounds an excellent plan. Okay, so I'll kick off. Um, so uh, Germany in 1945, actually just to think about the facts and figures of it is astonishing. So there's 5 million people dead. Um, there's 9 million men 
in allied western allied or soviet prison camps so germany is you know to an extent that we in britain with our sort of you know we we sort of get very misty-eyed about coventry cathedral and the blitz and and all this sort of stuff but this is a completely different order of magnitude of destruction but also of kind of a moral destruction you know this sort of moral humiliation the, the country is on the verge of being divided yeah it's about to be divided between um uh, sort of allied and soviet zones uh in berlin 4,000 people are dying every day of disease in the second half of 1945. So it's, I mean, the Germans call this Stunde Null, so zero hour. But they mean that in, in, in that's got a kind of ambiguous meaning, because on the one hand, it means kind of they're absolutely in the depths of degradation and despair. But at the same time, they like to think of this, and, and it's projected to them as a clean break with the Nazi yeah. past, which is a bit of a, well, which is a complete myth, actually, because as we'll see, there are tons of Nazis around in the... I mean, they don't all disappear. No, and some of the, one, one of them becomes uh, Chancellor. <laughs> becomes Chancellor, exactly. Yeah, we'll come but, to him. But, Dominic, I, did you, have you read um, this new book that's just come out in English uh, by Volker Ulrich, who wrote great biography of Hitler? Uh, ah, eight Days in May, How Germany's War Ended. So I haven't read this. Have you read this, Tom? I have. Uh, I, I actually just read it just before... Um, uh, the idea for this podcast got suggested which is yeah. why i was ready to say yes okay let's do it because um i mean it's full of it's it's brilliant it's kind of pointillist um depiction of the last eight days between the the, the suicide of hitler yeah. and um the the kind of complete surrender of germany so it's kind of dernitz government isn't it yes yeah, so dernitz is, is is kind of supposedly in power but you have um all these kind of little portraits of different people say people from the nazi regime um people who are its victims and um, Germans who were opposed to Nazism. So you get these portraits of various people who will become leading players in the history oh, of, very good. of the Federal yeah. Republic. Uh, wh- one of whom, of course, is Konrad Adenauer, who will become the first chancellor of yeah. the, the Federal Republic. But there's an amazing description of how he, you know, he, he gets brought by the Americans to become mayor of Cologne. And he, he sees the cityscape of of Cologne and it's absolutely flat and the cathedral is you know devastated buildings are totally and he he can't he can't comprehend how the city could be rebuilt and the Americans say no we must you know you must rebuild it and so he he puts his shoulder to that particular wheel but the sense that even Adenauer who who plays such a crucial role in getting Germany back on its feet his first instinct is to say it can't be done well this is the extraordinary thing so there's another another book that I read book called um came out this year also translates into English, called Aftermath by a guy called Harold Yena. And he talks in that book, it's basically how ten, the 10 years after the war. So a lot of it is about denazification and the lack of and so on. But he has a whole chapter about rubble. Um, yeah, and yeah. basically, there is so much rubble, so many buildings have been destroyed, that clearing it up is, is the work of years. And it's this colossal kind of national it, To begin with, it's the women who have to do it. Right, exactly. Because all the men are away. Because all the men are in. I mean, it's an absolutely mind-blowing story, which, which doesn't really get told in the West, because it's, you know, we won, the Germans lost, hurrah, hurrah, end of story. Um, and, and in Germany, the way they, they, they told that, that, that story themselves was pretty... Um, distorted so in his book aftermath yena says basically they repressed all memory of everything they'd done or we repressed rather he says and he says we we coped by casting ourselves as victims but having said that i mean there are heroes 
and I think Adenauer yes. does rank as a hero, doesn't he? So, so Adenauer is the is the let's uh, let's get into him. He's such an, a titanic figure. So, when the Germans had a had a competition called Unsere Besten, to they had a big vote where three million people voted. It was the equivalent of the Great Britain's contest that the BBC had at the beginning of the twenty first century um, to find the greatest German in history, and Adenauer won. Do you know who came second? You'd like this. Well, <laughs> I'm guessing he didn't come second. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was banned. Uh, um, Goethe. No, Martin Luther. Oh, excellent. Yes, Car- I approve. Uh, Karl Marx well, came third, um, interestingly. Anyway, um, Adenauer. So Adenauer is an, is an extraordinary man. He is ridiculously old when he takes office. So he becomes Chancellor in 1949. This is when West Germany is finally up on its feet. He's 73 years old. He was born in 1876. Yeah. And he was, he'd been, de- you say about the Americans making him mayor of Cologne, he'd been deputy mayor of Cologne uh, in 1909. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And imagine a man from, who'd been um, in politics 19- in Britain. He'd been mayor of Cologne from 1917, hadn't he? Up till, yes, he had. Uh, up um, to the Nazis taking power. So his, uh, you'll enjoy, you'll like him, no doubt, because his religion is very important to him. Absolutely. He's a Catholic. Yeah. Uh, he's a Rhinelander. Uh, he's been part of the Centre Party. I mean, the great formational moment in Adenauer's political development was uh, Bismarck's Kulturkampf against the Catholic Church. And he hates the Prussians as a result of this. Well, Dominic, would you... I mean, I, I know that I kind of bring this theme up every time, but would you not say that looking at the history of post-war Germany, the um, the Catholic and Protestant dimensions yes, to it, it is. are actually incredibly... And, and, you know, and even looking at the electoral map, um, as it, we're recording this on Monday, so the day after the election, and you have this kind of... The, the, the CDU, the, um, the Conservative... Um, uh, union founded, you know, that Adenauer kind of led from the beginning. So very Catholic, yeah. Kind of concentrated in the south, where historically Catholics yep. have been concentrated, and the SPD t- t- in the, the north. north. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. Kind of much more Protestant and Lutheran. And actually, when I went through this with the, doing the doing the chancellors, I wrote down next to each one Catholic or Protestant. And it's funny how it always points it out in the all biographies of them always mention it because it's so foundational in German politics, that Catholic. So Adnan hates Prussians because he sees Prussians as Protestants, anti-Catholic, all these kinds of things. Um, It's why he's actually quite keen on the idea of setting up West Germany. He's actually not, in some ways, he's actually not that bothered about losing East Germany because it's full of Prussians and he hates them and he blames them for Nazism. So Adnan presides over Germany till 1960. Well, but also, Dominic, just to say, I mean, just to say that his record under the Nazis... I mean, he sits it out, but he he does get arrested, doesn't twice. he? Twice. He's in prison yeah. twice. Yeah. And After the knife, es- the long knives, and then again in the war. And he tries to escape, gets a- arrested again, taken yeah. to the Gestapo cell, somehow <laughs> manages to get out. So, I mean, you know, he's... He's got a great record. He's, he's got, got a great record. He's, yeah. he, it's, it's not uh, surprising that the Germans voted him as their best German, because, you know, he's a, it's a great story. Um, so he's a very old man. One thing he does do is he scraps denazification. So he says, basically, we can't go on um, having endless trials and interrogations and so on. We need to get the country back up on its feet and we need to shut this down. And effectively, he shuts it down pretty soon after taking over as chancellor. And and he prioritises recovery and rebuilding rather than kind of, um, you know, accounting for all the sins. He says we can't account for all the sins of the past. Now, now, authors like Harold Yena say this is this is sort of poor stuff. Um, But I suppose you could make an argument that from a point of view of pure pragmatism, because so many people were implicated in the Nazi regime to get Germany on its feet, especially given the pressure of the Cold War, he probably had to shut it down to some extent. But of course, he then becomes on 
goes on to become a sort of founding father of European unification and so on. And the alliance um, with France. The, the alliance with France. with France. Yeah, he takes Germany to NATO. He rearms West Germany. So, And he's 87 when he retires. So he makes Joe Biden look like a... Yeah. <laughs> and he remains head of the CDU until he's 90. Yeah, ridiculous. I mean, because, just... because the, the guy who succeeds him, Ludwig Erhard, yeah. never actually, although he leads a CDU government, never actually joins the CDU. No, he's a very apolitical figure, actually, Ludwig Erhard. Just one last thing on Adenauer. An amazing fact I found. Um, in 1957, in the Ministry of Justice, so 1957, this is sort of Volkswagen rebuilding Germany. You know, Germany is a cuddly again and the, the economic miracle is underway. In 1957, eight out of ten officials in the Ministry of Justice had been Nazis. Um, so that's yeah. the sort of dark side, if you like, of the Adenauer's. Now, Ludwig Erhardt, we're talking about the World Wars. Here's a great sort of World War story. Uh, he's Bavarian, so a Catholic part of Germany, but he has a Protestant mother. And he's who, raised as... Protestant, who raises him as a Protestant. Exactly right. And he fights in World War One on both fronts, and he's badly injured at the Fifth Battle of Ypres. Uh, Gary Sheffield would enjoy these facts. and um, as, his, my, uh, as my grandfather was. Really? Mm. But your grandfather didn't become economics minister in a no, post-war German government. No, so um, that... that, that a notable man, difference. no doubt, in his own right. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and did your grandfather have his uh, one arm shorter than the other? I don't think so. Ludwig Erhardt did. He looked excellent in the hat. <laughs> did he? Yeah. Your grandfather or Ludwig Erhardt? Uh, my grandfather. I don't, whether, I don't know whether Erhardt looked I've seen pictures of Erhardt in a hat, actually. Did he look Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, yeah he, he looked good? very good. He yeah. looked kind of grinning. He's kind of, slightly, he's a kind of, kind of roly-poly guy. Yeah, very roly-poly. Um, um, so... Uh, he, 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 he's not really a, one of life's politicians before the, so during the sort of 1930s, the Nazi era, he'd actually worked as an economist for the German finished goods industry, for the association of finished goods manufacturers. I don't actually so know. So there what was finished... boring stuff <laughs> happening <laughs> before yeah. the federal Republic. Yeah. He sort of kept his head down <laughs> and, uh, he's, he's a technocrat mid sixties. He falls after three years cause he's seen as too pro American, I think by and large and he's just not very political and and so he falls and so now we have a nazi yeah so now we have this very very interesting character so imagine i mean if you were so for here for a brief shining moment he's the world's most famous kissing or kiesinger as he's called kurt georg kiesinger but then of course he's completely eclipsed by henry kissinger which is yeah. like you with spider-man tom yeah it is you know so so yeah, so a certain degree of fellow feeling. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, but you're not a Nazi and never no, have been. True. No, that's true. So, so tell us about his record as a Nazi. Well, first and where of all, he, he comes from and how he ends up as as Chancellor. He's um, he's from Baden-Württemberg in the southwest. Now he's the reverse of Ludwig Erhard. So he comes from a family of Protestants, but his mother was a Catholic and she brought him up as a Catholic. And it's interesting, is it not? This, yeah. How many of them have a bit of both, a bit of Catholic and a bit of Protestant? Very interesting, in and, and also the mother being the, the sort of outsider who pushes them into her confession. And that sort of slight sense of outsiderness, I wonder if that plays a part. So this is me, my, my Freudian psychology. Yes, anyway. No, but plugging into church history in an excellent so, way. Good to see you. I finally, <laughs> finally so, got you. So Kurt Georg Kiesinger. I mean, he's a careerist. So he joins the Nazi party in 1933. There's only one reason you join the Nazi party in 1933. It's that they're in power. You know, because if you're, you know, he, that's why he's done it, obviously. And he has this, we should, we can say, um, colourful 
history, working with Ribbentrop and, Go- and Goebbels, producing propaganda, anti-Semitic propaganda. Because he doesn't fight, does he? he no, he, he's he, a pen pusher. He's a he's pen a, pusher who basically kind of ends up making propaganda for yeah, the, yes. the Foreign Office. So that's basically what he does. And he just does this consistently. He, af- even after he knows that, that what's happening to the Jews. So after it's kind of common knowledge, um, he carries on doing it. So there's basically no, you know, he's a, he's a kind of, at best you would say he's, a, he's an amoral careerist. At the worst yeah. you say he's just an utter Nazi. And, and what's interesting about, so he is Chancellor, what, 66 to... 69. So, yeah. so this is the, and has 1968 in the middle, slap bang in the middle of yes. that term of office, when um, anxieties among teenagers, people in their early 20s, students about Nazis. So this is your genesis of the of the Bader-Meinhof group. This is yeah. your, you know, he he's very critical of, um, you know what he said about the baby boom generation? A uh, shameful I... crowd of long-haired dropouts who need a bath and someone to discipline them. So, you know, he's not holding back. Well, well so he's, he, he's leaning so he, into his reactionary reputation. So the CDU conference, he gets slapped, doesn't he? Yes, he does. By, he by does. a protester. So I'm yeah. not surprised. A, a Nazi hunter. A Nazi so hunter, yes. She's uh, Beata Carsfield, and she, um, she slaps him in the face at the CDU, exactly, the CDU convention, while shouting at him, Kiesinger, you're a Nazi, step down. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's all out there. I mean, not it's not good optics, is it? No. Um, and yet... This is what's fascinating, and actually, this takes me back to that book Aftermath about the after, you know, the, about the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, a lot of Germans, you know, you don't often hear this now, and actually, it's not part of almost the received narrative of, of sort of German post-war history. But a lot of Germans actually don't feel very apologetic about the Second World War, or indeed about Nazism. Opinion polls show that very clearly. Lots of people think, you know, oh, Hitler's well, problem was he went too far, and Kiesinger wins almost fifty percent of the vote in nineteen sixty-nine. Is is that more presumably more true of people on the right than the left, or am I being unfair? No, I'm sure that's you voters there. I'm sure that's because for the SPD, that the the left. Yes, I mean that is different, isn't it? And so the guy who succeeds uh, Kiesinger, Philly Brandt, great character. Yeah, he's a fabulous character. Yes, he is. Absolutely. I mean, you know, his whole life is is anti-fascist. Yes, anti-fascist. So of course he's not. He's not Philly Brandt. No, it's that's not his name, isn't it? It's an alias. Imagine yes. if we had a British Prime Minister who governed in the 70s. Under, imagine if Ted Heath was an alias. Yeah. <laughs> or, or James Gallaghan. So actually, his real name is Herbert Fromm. Um, and he's the son of a single parent department store cashier who never... He never knows his father. In Lübeck, the home in Lübeck. of Marzipan. <laughs> yes. It's exactly. incredibly beautiful city. The, the, I've never been to Lübeck. Have you been to Lübeck? I have. I've got a friend who lives in Lübeck. Oh, very nice. Uh, when you, when you visit, and, uh, will you bring me back? I said, oh, you must buy marzipan. And I don't yeah, really do. like marzipan. But I like marzipan a lot. To be polite, I bought quite a lot. When uh, you next go, please bring me back some Lübeck marzipan. Uh, anyway, we're will. going off piste. Um, yes, yeah, so Willy Brandt, uh, he's a socialist. He's, you know, card-carrying, absolute sort of quite hard left um, in the standards of the 20s. Uh, he flees Germany uh, when the Nazis come in. He has to. He goes to Norway and, and Greece and Spain. And Willy Brandt is one of his many aliases. And when he comes back to Germany at the end of um, World War Two, he decides, you know, it's a better name than Herbert Fromm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ends up being mayor of West Berlin. And, and I think he's right, isn't he? Because, I mean, it's, it's a great name. Yeah, it is a good name. 
Yeah. And he's built up hugely by Kennedy. So Kennedy identifies him quite early on and says, this guy's a tremendous fellow. You know, we should sort of build him up. And Kennedy, obviously, when he goes to make his speech in West Berlin, Ich bin ein Berliner, Willy Brandt is at his side. And the Americans are very keen on Willy Brandt. But Willy Brandt is kind of, he's the, the voice of youth. He's the voice of, he says, you know, we need more reform. We need more democracy in Germany. And he comes in in 1969 as part of a, a coalition, I think, after. So Kiesing goes, is out and he comes in. I mean, he's, he's, he's less, he's, he's kind of become more centrist, hasn't he? Since his early firebrand. Yes. Socialist yes, Absolutely. Days. Absolutely. And but, so he does, I mean, he's, he's very pro-American. I mean, whether that's because... Well, you have you to know, be pro-American in West Germany in, because guess, America is defending you against... I mean, but isn't he backing Vietnam and... I mean, yeah, I think like West... That and, and, and that's one of the things that West he, Germany government supports. Yeah, of He's course. a Keir Starmer figure. Um, <laughs> that that really... Cracking down on the left. Keir Starmer has never been on the run. <laughs> no. Uh, I don't see him no, as a man right, leading... I, a, I withdraw that analogy. Um, but... But 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 he is also, I mean, the famous thing he does is Ostpolitik. Ostpolitik. Kind of, so basically, recognizing East Germany exactly, which none of the the previous chancellors had done. No, they basically said East Germany is illegitimate. He he says let's normalize relations, and then we can both join the UN. The other thing he does, the one thing that he's very famous for, in the in sort of um, outside Germany, and I found this fascinating when I discovered this. So this extraordinary moment in 1970 when he goes to Warsaw. Mm. to the 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 memorial to the um ghetto uprising in warsaw yeah and he kneels in this fantastic photograph incredibly you know it's a very moving moment and and is always taken i think in sort of anglo-american textbooks and things you know this is a sign of the new germany and all this what is absolutely fascinating is that a plurality of germans did not agree with him so 48 percent of west germans thought that was wrong to have knelt why why did they think it was wrong well, you can, can you not, I mean, they Shameful, thought it was yeah. it's, unpatriotic, unpatriotic, um, too much, um, yeah. groveling, you know, you don't have to, it's, it's, a. it's too dramatic. It's too, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be forgetting, you know, you, the, a whole load of reasons, which you can complete. If a British prime minister did it for something at Amritsar, yeah, Amritsar let's say, yeah, yeah. right. You can imagine the commentary. So it's kind of not dissimilar, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, anyway. not to downplay the Amritsar massacre, but it's it's not quite on the scale of the Holocaust. No, is of it? course not. Of course not. I mean, I mean, but that's what's so interesting that in 1970, even as lots of young Germans, the sort of Bader Meinhofie type people and their fellow travellers, are saying this place is full of Nazis, we haven't got over the, you know, we've we've buried our guilt, we haven't admitted it, and all this. Even at that moment, 48 percent of their fellow citizens are saying Brandt should not have knelt. Um, at the at the ghetto memorial, so he's very popular anyway with sort of liberal minded, intellectually kind of people, so artists and and all this. Um, Gunter Grass, Gunter Grass, exactly. But he has this. Um, he's a to use your brother's terminology. He is a massive lad. Um, so <laughs> I think it's our terminology as well. There's a, there's a lot going on with the ladies, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of drink being taken, and he also suffers from depression. So and also he has a secretary, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. Who has an unfortunate turns out to have an unfortunate background. Uh, Gunter Guillaume, I think his name yeah. is. Um, so he's basically an East German spy. Um, have you seen the um, brilliant Michael Frayn play about that? No, I haven't. Democracy. Of, yeah, it's really good. I think it was on at the National. Can't remember, must have been twenty years ago or something like that. And it had Roger Allen, who is in. Uh, was he really in, in in Endeavour now? 
Um, yeah, yeah, he was really good. Uh... Yeah, he was fabulous. Really fantastic. Still lives vividly in my memory. So, so ever since, Billy Brandt has been my favourite chancellor. But, um, but Billy Brandt doesn't retire. He doesn't resign just because of the spy. The spy is kind of the trigger. You know, he's sick of it anyway. He's okay. He's so exhausted. I may have got that wrong then. From the um, you know, there's a memorial it. to him. You love these walks. There's a memorial to Billy Brandt in Hammersmith. Is that? Um, he donated when he was mayor of West Berlin a, a, a lamp or lantern and swapped it with Hammersmith. They twinned with some part of West Berlin, and it's still there with a little plaque underneath saying oh, Billy Brandt. Oh, I'll go and search um, that out. Yeah, I, I don't think it's worthy of a podcast before you get excited. No, but um, po- po- possibly worthy of a little stroll. Okay, very good. Yeah. I'll so, uh, are we, do we have time for one more before the break? Do you think? Well, I think we, I think we should we should whistle through because I think that the. The later ones will be kind of escalatingly more familiar. We're about to get into my favourite one, though. Helmut Schmidt. Helmut Schmidt. He was a Nazi as well. Well, <laughs> I think you're being hard. So well, he literally, he literally joined the Wehrmacht in... Wait a second, wait a second. So he was in the Hitler Youth. He was kicked out of the Hitler Youth for not being a Nazi, for being anti-Nazi. Okay. For being but arrogant, then, I thought. But then, but then it's very ambiguous, because he's then back in the Hitler Youth, and there are reports from his superiors saying, he's a great Nazi. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so... so He's, he's a teenager. He's, he's dithering. He doesn't know what he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, We've all been there. I he's think. wrestling with his with his ideological yeah. convictions. Yeah. Um, but yes, he fight. He has an amazing war. He fights on the Eastern Front. He fight. He's at the siege of Leningrad and he's, on the drive on Moscow. Um, yes, he's I at mean, the. I, I, he's at the I trial think the of this. Is stacking up here. But he's a German. He's in the German army. I mean, yes, he and he's about twelve. I don't know. I mean, he's he doesn't signed re- up to the German army. He's attacking Moscow. He's laying siege to Leningrad. He's at the trial of the Stauffenberg conspirators, but not on trial. He's just watching. Uh, and, and then that, he fights at the. Back. And that I gather is what changed his. his is that mind. right? I didn't know that. I didn't the, know that he goes there, and I think this this is from um, Ulrich's book. Yeah, that that he. Um, he attends this hearing of the conspirators against Hitler. Um, and, and it's only then that he realizes that the Nazis are criminal. And he says this himself, apparently in an interview that he did in later in life, um, too late. Schmidt added, he'd realized oh, that's very, it's that's too very, late. Yeah. So well, I he's think a great he was, so I like, he was compromised. I, I, and then he kind of, he realizes he his compromise though, Tom, I like he that. Admits about his him. Compromise. He's I knew he was a... Yes, he absolutely admits it. And he goes and on to he... fight. He still fights. He fights in the battle of the Bulge. He fights in the Ardennes. Um, but he's, I think he's on a journey by that point. He's on his journey, right? He's on a journey. He's captured he, by the he, British, he ends, isn't he? Yeah. Well, he ends up becoming a social Democrat. He does indeed. So he takes over from Willy Brandt. Uh, he's very pro-European. He's very hard on the Bader Meinhof group. He takes an incredibly hard line against them in the so-called, what's he called? The German, I can't remember what it's called. It's either called the German spring, the German summer, or the German autumn. I can't remember which one of them. I'm sure it's not the German winter. Springtime for Germany. Um, anyway, it's one of these things where the Bader-Meinhof are at their peak and they've kidnapped Hans-Martin Schleyer, or whatever his name is, the head of the German business group, and it's all very um, big news. Anyway, he's a chain smoker. He's great pals with... Uh, Callahan. Callahan, Gerald Ford. They go on holiday together when they've fallen from office. This is the. I'd love to write a play about this. Yeah, <laughs> that's very Michael Frayne. He, he, he could yes. play with that. So yeah. they go on holiday. Henry Kissinger said he hoped he. Um, what did he say? He hoped he died before Helmut Schmidt because he wouldn't like to live in a world that didn't have Helmut Schmidt in it. He's obviously, a man of incredible. This is a very nice thing. And the, the, the other thing charm is charm and charisma. He when when Margaret Thatcher was became Britain's prime minister, Helmut Schmidt went around saying to all the other European leaders, "This is going to be awful. She's the most dreadful bitch." <laughs> this is what but then he pitched up in london and they got on really well um because she kind of had a bit of a fancy for kind of 
chain smoking yeah he's kind of Cecil Parkinson type. he was exactly Looks, didn't he, he had that. and um when he used to come right to you know they used to meet up she used to say to him I love talking to you because you're the only a world leader ever meet who's more right wing than I am um because he although he's in the SPD he's very kind of hard line on something because he'd become very hard line economically so um yeah, I, like, I, I'm a great fan of Helmut Schmidt. I think he's a great character. He's he was late- very, very charismatic, perhaps in a way that Most quite a lot of, of German chancellors yeah. you know, he, deliberately he, he, haven't Like been. Ted Heath, he was very big on the piano. He recorded piano music. He was arrested in later life for smoking against the smoking ban. Um, massive lad. Yeah, massive lad, exactly. Yeah. wrote a contributed an article to a festschrift for the philosopher Karl Popper. I mean, yeah. that's a, he's a complete... <laughs> The complete chancellor. He's the German. I mean, maybe apart from the war, he's the, he's the German chancellor you'd want to be, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Um, he is. Now maybe is. at this moment we should take a break. We haven't got to Angela Merkel yet, but I mean, maybe that's the story. But of we her. have we have the, the huge bulk of Helmut Kohl <laughs> now looming, <laughs> looming, yeah. looming towards us. So let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, um, woo, more Germans, Kohl. more Germans. <laughs> Don't go away, Germans. We got them. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket, and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine, if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, Today I read on Twitter from uh, a satisfied listener to our James Bond podcast that what was great about The Rest is History's Bond podcast was that it was neither, it wasn't full of the flippancy and cliches that you get from so many podcasts. Whether people will say that about this podcast, (laughs) about post-war German politics, remains to be seen. But as Tom said, we now confront... (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah the vast bulk of helmut Kohl. so helmut Kohl is probably the german chancellor who gives german chancellors not exactly a bad name i mean he's a colossus isn't he? he's a political in colossus, every sense but he is quite boring but isn't I think. again i mean we've said this throughout that the, the boringness that being is the point. boring is a, a, a quality yeah and if you're not boring then there's a faint hint of suspicion I guess, as, well, as happens with Schmidt. Schmidt. Schmidt famously said there was talk about German politics lacking vision. 
And uh, Schmidt said, you know, if you're seeing visions, you need to consult a doctor. Yeah. Um, and I think, yes, and some listeners to the podcast will say, oh, this giggling about politicians being boring is typical of a British flippancy and a, and a, and a, and a, and a sort of deliberate nihilistic silliness which has, you know, sort of landed Britain. Has, in has resulted of, in Boris. Right. <laughs> and that actually, you know, you sh why are you laughing at Helmut Kohl being boring when actually Helmut Kohl is an is a incredibly serious and important figure? Well, do you, you know the father of modern Germany? Do you know who called him that? Um, Margaret Thatcher. Right. Well, Margaret Thatcher, of course, and Helmut Kohl have this terrible relationship. But um, she admired him. They're both on the centre-right. So she can't forgive him for German reunification, which she... I mean, she famously... You know what she says about German reunification? We defeated the Germans twice, and now they're back, which is obviously not well, very Mitterrand constructive. Well, basically felt the same, didn't he? The um, president of France. I yeah, mean, but he, he, didn't admit, felt, he didn't say it publicly. No he, no, he didn't say it publicly, but he, he, he was kind of, you know, phoning up Mrs. Thatcher, and they were... Yeah, bemoaning with moaning each... Moaning away yeah, about yeah. the Germans. Of course. But, but I mean, there's this. I can't remember whether we talked. I think we did talk about this, but uh, I, I'm, I like, I enjoy it, so I'll talk about it again on our Anglo-German relations podcast. So she went over to visit Helmut Kohl in Germany, and and this is they're obviously both centre-right leaders. They're both you know invested in the Cold War. They're so both he's, friends. He's CDU. He's Catholic. He's from the Rhine. Yes, I mean they should get on fine, yeah. and actually he's determined that they will get on fine, and he takes her to the Palatinate. Uh, Rhineland Palatinate where he's from and he takes it to his hometown of Augersheim I mean well I think all German politicians should come from somewhere called Augersheim uh, he takes it to his favourite restaurants and they have a lot of sausages and stuff and then he takes it to the cathedral in Speyer in the Palatinate where eight holy Roman emperors are buried yeah, I've been there have you is it a good cathedral oh, it's fantastic yeah I mean if you if you love 10th and uh, 11th century German history there's then, nowhere better which I do yeah oh, <laughs> no, um, no, so, I, I took children and, there. And he takes, he takes, <laughs> did you? God, well, you should have gone with Margaret Thatcher. So <laughs> Helmut Kohl, or with Helmut Kohl. So he takes her in, and while they're behind a pillar or something, he says to Charles Pohl, her foreign policy guy, he says, this is really important for me, this. It's absolutely, this is the quote, it's absolutely crucial that Mrs. Thatcher knows I consider myself a European first and a German second. And he takes her around, he shows her the tombs and all that, and then she leaves. And the first thing she says is... My God, that man is so German. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, he is very German. Yeah. Um, and but he's not, he wouldn't work in Britain, but he works in Germany precisely because of the lack of colour, lack of vision, all of those kinds of things. But to Mrs. Thatcher's credit, I think, you know, the, the father of modern Germany, she wouldn't just say that. No, I mean, no. She no. didn't well, he is the know, father come of out with guff. And, and clearly, she could recognise, despite the, the fact that she, she didn't like him in the way that she'd obviously liked Schmidt. That he was a, a titanic figure. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, which he was. was. Which because, was. because he is the, the, the chancellor who presides over the reunification of Germany. And they do it so quickly, within a year. So quickly and effectively and efficiently. And yeah. I mean, it's very costly at the time. Um, costly for everybody. It's, it's costly for East Germans because uh, they are disadvantaged. You know, they're economically disadvantaged and so on. But, you know, in the long run, it obviously worked and turned Germany into the powerhouse that it now is. There's an argument that had he delayed and delayed, you know, there would people would have started mm. to find objections and so on. But he really went for it for a very kind of stolid looking man. It was an act of almost swashbuckling kind of decisiveness. Um, and yeah, absolutely. played. he had a very sad ending, Helmut Kohl. So he had I don't know if it was a stroke or something like that. But basically, while he was in hospital, 
um, he ended up marrying somebody who was about 40 years younger than himself, who then kept him, well, this is contested, but basically his family claimed that she kept him as a virtual prisoner, and he fell out with the whole of the rest of his family. Very sad story. Um, sad. So that was the end of him. Anyway, he was replaced by a... A man who absolute I think, shyster. Yeah, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? <laughs> absolute. So Gerhard Schroeder really shouldn't be a German politician. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's a, a British shocker. politician. Yes, he's a sort of Tory MP from the major government. Yes, or something. yes he is. He's um, made a fortune, kind of flogging second-hand cars. So, so his father was killed in World War Two when he was a baby in Romania. Uh, he's a Lutheran. Well, nominally, I think he he's actually an atheist. Uh, grew up in Westphalia. I'm supposedly in 1982. Are you reading this off from Wikipedia? No, I'm reading off from my notes. I'm reading off from okay. my notes. Sorry. In 1982, uh, he supposedly went visited the federal chancellery, chancellery, drunk and shouted, I want to get in. I want to get in. And eventually did. he did in wow. 1988. Amazing story. Amazing story. Uh, <laughs> but. Because he was quite, I mean, he was quite. He's Blairite. Hard left. He was quite hard left. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and then And moved. then he gets into power and he basically chums up with Tony. Yeah, you should love him. His third way, his pure um, third way. So Blair, and he, Clinton, and, and Schroeder. Really goes with goes kind of very, very. Uh, his his economic policies are, are, are really quite right wing. Yeah, but I think actually the truth of the matter is politically he's been completely eclipsed by his behaviour. So you, he's been married five times. You know what the Germans call him? <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so previously, and they, and they unbelievably, say Germans have no sense of humour. Yeah, previously they called him when he was name. married four times. They called, he was nicknamed was Audi Man. <laughs> And then now they call him Olympic Man. I mean, it's a, he's a parody. His wives have become progressively younger. Um, but the other thing is the is the Russian his stuff. hair. I mean, yeah, his, his hair, hair is really? shocking. Paul McCartney's <laughs> sort of uh, yes. level. Um, the other shocking thing about Gerhard Schroeder is the Russia stuff. So, yes. which is he, which is a, a story that will run with Merkel as well. Yeah, he became a lobbyist for Gazprom and Rosneft and all these Russian companies. And, you know, he spent his seventieth birthday party in the Yusupov Palace and. St. Petersburg, and the guest of honour was Vladimir Putin. And there's no doubt, I mean, he's being paid for a lot of this. You know, he's just become, as you say, a complete and utter um, shill, basically, yeah. for, the, for the Putin regime. Um, and he's so kind of huge behind the, the Nord Stream, the, the, Nord, um, exactly, the bringing the, the, uh, the Russian gas directly well, to Germany and bypassing Ukraine. And So I think we're going to come to that because this is obviously one of Angela Merkel's great legacies, is the Nord Stream gas pipeline so now we've come to angela and uh of course this will be music to your ears because her religious background is, is crucial is very important which it's is very... why she uh opens the last chapter in dominion i've forgotten that yeah i'm not it's... blanking out dominion no. i mean uh, I, it's 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 in, like calais it's engraved on my heart but, uh... <laughs> so each each chapter begins yeah. with a scene you know yeah. 21 chapters spanning Two and a half thousand years. And the last one is, is Angela Merkel on TV in Rostock with a Palestinian girl who's a refugee who's come yeah. to, to Rostock for medical treatment and now has to go back. And she asks Merkel, why do I have to go back? I, you know, I don't want to go back. Uh, and Merkel says, well, I'm, you know, basically that's tough. It's the way things are. You know, we can't have everyone over here. Uh, and the girl bursts into tears and Merkel looks embarrassed. And then a few weeks later, um, in the face of the uh, the great migrant crisis, um, refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and so on crossing uh, Europe, she unexpectedly opens yeah. the borders. Um, and 
my thesis, which is not original to me, because I think lots of people think it, is that this is very powerfully influenced by the uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which she would have absolutely absorbed at the feet of her father, who was a Lutheran pastor who very unlike most people at the end of the war are going from east germany to west germany he goes from hamburg to uh, to, to berlin yes. to um to keep the lutheran fire alive in in what's obviously going to become communist east germany but it's it's not just the lutheranism though is it isn't it also her her sense of what we've been talking about in this podcast of german history and of german guilt and germans obligations well, germany's also, obligations to yes. the world Absolutely. But I also wonder, I mean, with her, so her father, I mean, when he goes there, I mean, there's this kind of Lutheran idea that, you know, of church and state, that you, you don't really worry about what the state is, you focus on the church, which kind of enables him uh, morally to to live and work in East German society. But I, I mean, obviously, Merkel has, I mean, she is, she is still a kind of devout lutheran and it obviously does inform her her morality and her politics and her seriousness i think yeah um but uh, when the when the berlin wall comes down and um east germany becomes part of west germany and uh, you know fused into the federal republic she joins the cdu the conservatives and the you know catholics and she's a lutheran but i think i think that that you know so her father was was um uh was called Red Kasner. So her father yeah. was, you know, that's that was her, her maiden name. Um, I wonder whether, <clears throat> as well as a kind of Christian commitment, she also inherited from that experience a kind of mistrust of wild idealism of the kind that her father had shown by going to East Germany. I don't yeah, know. Her mother, I, her mother was deeply opposed to the move East. So they went against the mother's wishes. And obviously the fact that he was called, I find that fascinating that he was called Red Kasner because... I think he's called that because he clearly has left of centre sympathies. Definitely. And that's what enables her to get the, the, the great education that she does. Yeah. Because she, what's interesting about her as well is that, and actually this does tie in with some previous chances, you know, to my Helmut Schmidt and the people who are in the Hitler Youth and so on. She is in, you know, the, um, she works as, a, so, I mean, there's a lot of argument about this in Germany about exactly what she did, but she probably worked as a propaganda officer for the sort of, um, the, the main, you know, state-sponsored communist youth organization uh, in the in the GDR. She was never anything vaguely, remotely resembling a dissident. And she's completely, you know, she's been completely open about that. She sort of said it would be career suicide. It would be, you know, very yeah. damaging for my family. And this is obviously true of, you know, millions upon millions of people in East Germany. She kept her head down and, um, you know, sort of got on with it. And... Well, she's I, I, not a radical, and, no. and it's always safety first. Yeah, and there's the famous story, isn't that when the the Berlin Wall comes down, that she goes and has a look, yeah, and then and she they, goes back because she's got, she's got to get up. She's got work the next morning. It's the morning, exactly, <laughs> absolutely, exactly right. And I think you know she she won big student Russian competition. Um, yeah. uh, she she worked. You know, she had a head down for years. For years, you know, we're talking about ten years or more. Um, in science, you know, you know what her uh, thesis is, her research paper, Tom. Do you know the title of her research paper? I don't. It's vibrational properties of surface hydroxyls, non-empirical model calculations, including anharmonicities. Well, what does that tell you? Nothing. I don't know what any of that means. Well, I guess what it might tell you is that I mean, she she has a Lutheran background. 
Yeah. But she obviously has a, a background in hard science. Yes. Uh, science operates according to And you know to who this is, this is leading us towards, who she's yes. very similar to. Yes, yes, uh, in, in so many ways, and yet in so many ways not, to, to Mrs. Thatcher, I guess. Yeah, say. to Margaret Thatcher. I think it's both scientists, both from, you know, what we would call nonconformist or, or sort of low church backgrounds, and both con- consistently underestimated by their male opponents until the moment when they reveal themselves more opportunistic, more cunning. You know, Helmut, Helmut Kohl... She stabbed, ended up stabbing him in the back at the end of the so 1990s. So he, he, he appoints her fairly quickly he does, as yeah. Minister for Women in the CDU. Just like Ted Heath and Margaret Thatcher, actually, she comes on board as a, as a token woman. She's a pure... And, and Cole patronises her dreadfully. He goes around, he says, this is, this is my matron, this is my girl kind of thing. You know, this is my little mascot um, from the East who I'm showing off. And he introduces... I think he introduces someone like George Bush senior in this incredibly condescending way i mean this is a woman who's been a, a research scientist for 10 years yeah. in the east um and then you know quietly all the time people call her the snake in the in the in the 90s but the con the contrast with mrs thatcher is is that mrs thatcher kind of made a virtue out of you know the the, the smoke and crash of battle yeah i mean she would she, she she would advance towards fire Yes. Whereas yes. Merkel, it seems, has always done the opposite. Yes, she has, and this is the criticism that you read in a lot of the commentary. That um, well, it's cri- it, it's not necessarily criticism, is it? Well, no, because it's work. Uh, it's short, brilliant short-term politics, right? But, I mean, but, but is it not also going with the grain of what Germans want? Probably is. Be- yeah, be- you're because right. because again, if you compare it to Britain, one of the, I mean, one of the things about British politics that is Merkel's criticism of it. Is that it's flippant? It's short term. It it it. Yeah, unnecessarily it, sensationalist it, uh, and aggressive. Sensationalist, and, yeah. kind of you know, rolling things on a throw of the dice, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Which which you might say reflects the fact that um, uh, Britain didn't undergo a fascist dictatorship, wasn't kind of you know defeated in two world wars, uh, wasn't divided, uh, didn't have um, a, you know a quarter of the country under communist dictatorship. Um, so Britain is able to kind of treat recent history in a faintly flippant manner, yeah. In a way that German Germans can't. That's and absolutely shouldn't. right. Yeah, absolutely right. That she has. How would you not have that sense if you'd grown up in East Germany, and if you'd grew up, grown up with that the the experience of the two world wars, the Holocaust, and so on, Nazism hanging over you as, as all Germans have to this day. The interesting question, I suppose, is when that runs out. You know, when will German politics become flippant and um, well, I do. I mean, so if you think of, uh, of of Johnson with his kind of ironic postmodern yet also faintly serious identification with Churchill, yeah, but it's all a bit of a joke. It's a kind of Oxford Union debating pose, yeah. And you contrast that with the the palpable influence that the experience of growing up under a communist dictatorship has had on Merkel. You know the. the the difference in seriousness is obviously immense. I mean, uh, who is to say perhaps extreme seriousness is can be overdone? Because I do think I, I do I do you know obviously the, uh, the the Johnsonian approach is all about let's create chaos, let's um, throw the dice, let's see what happens. Um, and you know, as the as the the queues at petrol stations grow, we can see what some of the consequences of that might be. But equally, I suppose one of the, the criticism of of Merkelism would be that she's incredibly reactive yeah is is that fair 
I mean, yeah, I think it probably is fair. She's not she a very... waits for crisis to, to, to blow up, and then she kind of responds to them. Exactly, and she and often it... responds to them in ways that aren't necessarily great. Well, the example, a good a classic example, would be the Eurozone. So, you know, if you're listening to the podcast from Portugal, Ireland, Greece, or Spain, your take on Angela Merkel might be very different from you know somebody's take in Germany. You would say she punished us. She made us clients of of you know German manufacturing. Um, made it impossible for us ever to be competitive because of the austerity put in place uh, with, that came with the bailouts at the beginning of the 2010s. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, I think there's a sort of fantasy that, you know, which is, which is, which, by the way, is brilliant politics. That you know, I'm a pure pragmatic scientist, but I'm also the, an idealist, right? Making the right decisions, but kind decisions in the national interest, um, and that is that Mutti. is. Yeah, the mutti kind of yes. exactly. I'm the nanny. You've Mummy got knows to go best. to bed early because it's for your own good. Because you yeah. get school tomorrow. And it's slightly different. It's interesting that sort of that that female archetype. I mean, I think I think one of the great stories of politics actually in the last thirty forty years is what a terrible time women politicians have. Well, she hates yeah. she hates the nickname, doesn't she? And she, she does. And how subject they really are to stereotypes. It. I mean, yeah. Margaret Thatcher was con- was always seen as the nurse who gives you the really harsh medicine. I mean, she sort of embraced that herself. Or the doctor who prescribes, you know, you need to have both legs amputated to save your life. Um, uh, Merkel, it, it's exactly the, the, you know, the, the mother who tucks you up at, at night with kind of soothing words. Um, you know, she gives you, you know, the mother who serves you porridge, basically. She's not giving you something really horrible, not giving you something terribly nice either. Um, but she, that sort of mother of the nation thing is part of her, is, is a very part, successful part of her persona. And actually, you know, you were con- the contrast with Johnson. But different political personas work in different environments. I mean, you've talked about this with Rome with somebody like Nero. I mean, I know it's a ridiculous comparison, <laughs> but different. Well, I mean, I, I think a, a, a politician needs to adjust their presentation to the expectations of the society they're living in. And, and, they, and what works in one will not work. You know, Theresa May is actually, in some ways, a very good comparison with Angela Merkel. And she yeah. didn't work in Britain. She would have probably worked much better in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, another kind of interesting um, contrast with Germany and, and both Britain and France is that um, when, there is the, when there was that tsunami and the, the nuclear reactor in Japan got crippled, that Merkel's response was actually one of, seems of panic, closed down all nuclear reactors. With the That's result right. that Germany now, uh, its carbon footprint is twice that of France or yeah, uh, Britain. I think the um, colossal amounts of their energy they get from fossil fuels, something like a third or a quarter. Which is also going back to um, to the Nord Stream. Right. Well, this could be her biggest legacy, I think, actually. So, obviously, we're we're recording this at a time when people are saying that there may be power cuts in Britain because of the lack of gas, and we've got queues of petrol stations and all kinds of things so energy crisis seems very salient here but actually germany's energy crisis is in the long term kind of much more crippling well well, is it an energy crisis i mean they've got a deal with russia well it depends if you put the energy crisis in the context of global warming of the kind of the, the 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 kind of the macro level that actually to give him credit johnson at least is yeah, affecting to, to to care about. Talk about with his Muppets references. Um, and yes, his references to Sophocles. To be fair to him, uh, well, but I mean, but so, so part of the 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 um, 
one of the kind of consequences of Johnsonian flippancy is that you can just suddenly kind of change your mind. Um, mm. You know, I mean, he was he was massively anti-green, and now suddenly he's, he's going on about Kermit. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, well, I think I think there's all kinds of questions about that Nord Stream project. So, for people who don't know, this is as Tom said, this is this pipeline that goes basically from Russia to Germany. It bypasses Eastern Europe, the Baltic states. So, what it does is it makes Germany dependent on Russian natural gas, but it means that, in a way you can sell out those countries in between those two places. And actually, Germany, in the last, one of the, un, the stories that's never reported in, in Britain or America about Germany, it's in the last 10 years, Germany has become one of Russia's key trading partners. There are all kinds of links. We talk and about China's, Gerhard, right? Yeah, and China's. We talk all kinds of things. We talk about Gerhard Schroeder, um, sort of lobbying links and all these kinds of things between uh, Germany and Russia. Angela Merkel spoke to Vladimir Putin every week on the phone. I mean, she, Even though she hated dogs. Well, he did and, this and he weird... notoriously... Yeah. It's weird that he would do that when she's his, She's one of his pals, that he would... He got this big black Labrador to sort of stalk around her. And it, I mean, the photos are actually... Oh, well, that's kind um, of... Yeah, it's very Russian. Very, yeah. But she... They would speak sometimes in Russian. They'd speak in... He speaks German. She speaks Russian. Um, and she believed that she had a, almost a unique insight among Western leaders into Russia's mindset. But, I mean, against that, so against the fact that she has cozied up to Russian gas suppliers and yeah. uh, so on, and she's she's uh, cut um, Viktor Orban a lot, a lot of slack because even sure. though they obviously have completely contradictory opinions, say, on refugees, um, a Car lot factories. of German manufacturing Car is factories. in Hungary and yeah. so on. So um, she's very kind of practical, um, maybe cynical, one might say, on that score. Mm -hmm. um, but I think she... I mean, the reason that that Remainers in Britain love her is is that she has she had kind of has put the integrity of the European Union and Germany's dominant position within it kind of centre stage. So to that extent, she has kind of stuck up for Western values. Well, I think she has a vision of the EU um, that that absolutely does have Germany centre stage, and I think Germany is more now that Britain has left the EU. Obviously, Germany is now 20% of the population, more than 20% of the GDP. Um, France is probably the only counterweight. I mean, effectively, the, the EU has become more and more a German project. And it's interesting with... So, so project. obviously, the, the uh, Franco-German relationship throughout this period has been central, right the way back to Adenauer. Yeah, far more than uh, the German-Anglo-German. Oh, I mean, completely. But, you know, Cola and Mitterrand... Yeah, holding hands. together in cemeteries is yeah. kind of one of the defining images of the 80s, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, but, um, I mean, again, Macron has, has been pushing Merkel to kind of beef up European defence. I mean, that's the, and that's the backdrop to the, um, the bust up with, with the British and American Australian submarine yeah. thing. Um, is that actually it's not only Britain that's let him down, it's also Germany. The French want a friend. They just want a friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Macron wants wants a Europe that, as every French president has done, wants a, a Europe that can and led by France, yeah. that is effectively independent of America. Yeah, I think that's absolutely and right. He's been pushing and pushing Merkel to do that, and she hasn't wanted to do it. Well, I mean, that's because partly because of this legacy that's hung over the whole podcast, yeah. the the World War legacy. I mean, this sort of I know this seems like a parody of a sort of british history podcast talking about germany they're kind of basil faulty don't mention the war 
But I, I, th I don't think you can not mention it. I think it's absolutely, you know, you visit Berlin now and it is still there. And um, the sort of, the, what it gave Germans was a consciousness unmatched, in, in, I think, in Europe of the, you know, the sort of dangers of militarism, the damage that impassioned political rhetoric can do. I mean, just to describe the horrors that Germans endured in the 20th century, the dictatorships of left and right, you know, it's a, so you're in a different universe from anything in Britain or, or indeed in France, actually, even, even with the occupation. The, the other thing that we haven't really talked about, um, and <laughs> it reflects the fact we're definitely not a politics podcast, is, is of course, that it, it's um, uh, almost always dependent on coalitions. Yes. Uh, and we see that now that basically, you know, the CDU and the SPD both got the same, basically the kind of same number of votes. Um, and so there's going to be lots of horse trading and say probably Merkel will remain Chancellor for weeks, maybe months. Yeah. So you don't get the um, bear pit adversarial. Yeah. And so that, that obviously also is a, is a difference and, and is a structural one, a, a, again, designed to keep the, the, the spectre of... Yeah, dictatorship at bay. Uh, that's not yes. a, in any way a profound observation. No, I think it's a good observation. I thought we should kind of just chuck that into the mix. I think. Do you know what, Tom? The do you producer know, have we said to, Germany out now. The, the producer we, said to us before we started, maybe twenty twenty five minutes, and we've witted on we, for oh um, an hour. Uh, so I think we should definitely um, call a halt, and um, I will go off to contemplate my signed photographs of Helmut Schmidt, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You can go and do whatever German activity seems to you fitting. Uh, I'm actually going to go and watch the Sopranos film. Oh, very good. Uh, which isn't German at all. This is the uh, this is exactly the sort of louche life that the listeners yeah. will. It's it's the kind and of, of lifestyle that I'm advertising on the Guardian. Talking of films, yes. we are doing a very exciting event, aren't we? At, in, yes, uh, we are. In the at the Odeon Leicester Square. At the Odeon Leicester Square. This is the first time we've spoken about it publicly on this podcast. It's on the fourteenth. We're going to be doing of November. Fourteenth of November. November. We're going to be doing uh, history and the cinema. Yeah, in so, the cinema. In, in what could be more appropriate? <laughs> and uh, I don't think the tickets have yet gone on sale. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. Um, check our channels on Twitter. We will advertise the tickets. There are lots of them. We'd love to see as many listeners as possible. Uh, we should be talking about some very entertaining films, some controversial choices as well. Including one that I think I described as the worst portrayal of a bottom in cinema history. Well, if that's so not that's, enough that's, to get you... Yeah. I mean, what else would you rather be doing on a Sunday afternoon? So on that note, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. Bye-bye. Auf Wiedersehen. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. 
in fact there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the Romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with Tom give Walking the Dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr what's that Raymond? yes the rest is history did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it most spoilt dog in history maybe 